This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR.
stand up straight and tall In harmony with a cosmic sea True love needs no company It can cure the soul It can make it whole If dogs run free Good morning, all. I'm Tony Epstein, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that journeys into the heart of things, where we explore new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wonderful, crazy world we live in today. What you do with that is entirely up to you. My guest this morning is Jenny Martino who I enjoyed so much last time that I asked her to come back. And here she is. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Good morning, Tonio and everybody out there. Good morning. So what did you think of that song? I loved it. I love that dogs run free. (laughs) (laughs) I was inspired because I saw some of your Facebook posts Mm -hmm. about your dog. You call your guru? Yes, my dog is my guru. (laughs) (laughs) So that's actually one of my all-time favorite songs. Wow. And that's Bob Dylan, if you didn't know, if that wasn't obvious enough. A lot of Dylan fans don't even know that song. I have never heard that song. Yeah. So thank you so much for finding it and sharing it. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) So... What would you like to talk about this morning? Oh, there's so many things. There are. There are so many things. I I know that I would love to expand on the concept of sovereignty. We started touching on that last time. And I think you read my book. Yes, I did. You finally found it. Yes. Um, so, yeah, any... Any the Feral all those Ache. Things. The Feral Ache. Which yes. is such a great title because when I first heard the title, I had this sense of what it was. But of course, that was just me seeing the world through my own eyes, through my <laughs> own stuff. And one thing I did write down here was in your book, you wrote that you were an incredibly sensitive child. Yes. And so... Of course, I'm wondering what it was like for you to grow up in Haiti with all the different aspects and elements of religious beliefs. Your mother is a like a really devout Catholic, right? She she was actually Protestant, oh, but Protestant. yes, but she was. A I mix all those things up. They're they're all kind of the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all the same to me, which kind of got me in a bit of trouble. Uh-huh. So, And then there's voodoo and yes. and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, what was that like for you growing up as, as an incredibly sensitive child being exposed to those things? Because when you were young, when we're young, we're, we're like sponges and yes. we can't help but take in all that stuff. Yes, it was incredibly painful, actually. I was every parent's nightmare of incredibly sensitive and incredibly intelligent. And... 
So there was such a disconnect between what I knew that I knew that I knew and what I was being told was the truth. My mother came down as a missionary in the late 60s, and she was an evangelical Protestant. No wonder I I made the association to Catholic, because (laughs) to me, it's all like insanity. It's all like fundamentalist insanity. Yes. To me, it is as well. And my father was a closet atheist who kind of took me aside after many years of me just trying to get out of going to church and just took me aside and was like, Jenny, we go to church out of respect for your mother. But it was very painful to see, I didn't have the word imperialism then. I knew that there was this undercurrent of racism that was very present in evangelical Protestantism in Haiti. I knew that there was a hierarchy that was really quite well established. And it just went completely at odds with what I saw of the world and how much people mattered, just all people. And the voodoo, when I was a child, was really quite terrifying. It was very scary. Um, There was something very dark about it, but that was, of course, filtered through the lens of growing up in an evangelical Protestant home. Once I started dancing with um, the National Folkloric Dance Company, when I was about 12, the drummers who beat the drums for us, they were all practicing voodooists. And that kind of opened my world a little bit into that world. And the darkness and all that just kind of fell away. Although what all people, when you're a bit of a skeptic, would consider superstition, that also always bothered me. I also saw the control that voodoo had over a lot of people. So it was painful. So there's a lot of things to unpack in there. But I kind of want to start with how did your father get involved with your mother considering that he was a closet atheist and she was a devout evangelical Protestant? That would probably be a question you would have to ask. (laughs) And how did that affect you? Because you being a sensitive child must have felt the tension or the dynamic between the two of them. Yeah, there it was a really interesting dynamic. I mean, because adding on to that, they're very different worldviews. My father was 20 years older than my mother. My father was from a very wealthy Haitian family who had lost all their money. My grandfather lost it. My mother was from such a tiny town in Ohio that people in Ohio don't even know of the town and grew up really quite poor. So there was just so many interesting dynamics in their relationship. Yes, it was obvious to me as a child that these were two very different people and I never really quite grasped what was the motivation. I know that it was important for my father because when I I turned 18, I had the choice between being Haitian or American. And it was very clear to me that I was going to be Haitian and have my Haitian passport and my Haitian citizenship. And my father pretty much was like over my dead body. Absolutely not. Because having the Haitian passport is a prison sentence and the American passport, that's the golden ticket to the chocolate factory for sure. But you weren't interested in that. No, I was not interested in that. Mm -mm. Had you been to this country by that time? I had. I had been the first time I traveled to the States, I was two, so I did not remember that. And then 
three summers in a row, I think from nine to 11, I had been to the States. And what was your experience of this country like for you? I was terrified the entire time. (laughs) About what? What was the dynamic for you? The dynamic for me, my grandparents, small town in Ohio, not very pleased that their daughter had married a black man. Mm. And at some point along the line, I had either seen a movie or heard about the KKK. And there was just this constant terror because my father was visibly a black man and my younger sister is also quite dark skinned. And there was just this constant terror that we were going to be taken. And there was also this complete disconnect. I always felt I was going to be getting in trouble because there were so many laws in the States. And I just was always scared that I was going to do something wrong and get in trouble or that we just were something wrong and we're going to get in trouble. Mm. How did your grandparents respond to you and who you were? Not well. I think that my sister and I were the least favorite grandkids. There was a lot of, you know, the mutt kind of disdain a little bit. And I think we never really were forgiven my mother's sin of marrying a a Haitian man. And did you come up here with your mother? Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. So she brought you and your grandparents didn't really accept you? No, no. I mean, they were civil. My grandfather was much kinder and more open than my grandmother, but it, it was it was palpable when we were with our cousins that we were not treated the same. And were they also evangelical Protestants? <laughs> my my grandfather left factory work to become a pastor. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> so it, it was serious. It was serious. So you were living in the land of. I'm tempted to say hellfire and brimstone or whatever. Yes, yeah. Um, When I was a little bit older, I must have been 19, and I was um, spending the summer with my oldest cousin. He was concerned with my discomfort around him, and this is a man who got people to pay for him to travel places so he could pray on location. (laughs) And he felt that my discomfort around him had to be, I mean, most logically, that I was possessed by demons. <laughs> I mean, of course, there's no other possible explanation. So that was when he decided to perform an exorcism. So that's kind of the... At 19. <laughs> yes. So that's kind of the family on one side that I was steeped in and grew up in. So did he actually do perform an exorcism? He actually did. He and his In your wife, presence? Yes, locked me in a room and performed an exorcism. How did that go? (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It was, it was really scary. They were, they were very aggressive, a lot of screaming. And I was, I still am. I'm just a very shy person. And it was just overwhelming and truly, I mean, now... I just see it as unbelievably abusive and so just a horrible thing to do to a human being. Yeah. Yeah. So now that we've got that <laughs> out of the way, let's let's get into voodoo. Let's talk uh, Yeah, let's get into voodoo. Let's talk about voodoo and your experience of it because up here Americans don't really know anything about it 
most of us have heard some kind of mythological, probably horrific, dark, you know, supernatural tales about it. What is voodoo really like? Maybe you're not the authority on it, but you are much closer to being able to tell us what it's about than, than any of us are. I would definitely not position myself as an authority. However, I've danced all the traditional dances. I've gone to several ceremonies, and I've studied it quite a bit. I never went through an initiation, even though it was at one point a desire, just because I wanted to see what it was like. Voodoo is an animist religion. It is really quite different than the voodoo that is found in New Orleans. It is animist. We have a pantheon of a lot of different lois, is what they're called, the spirits. And they are very location-dependent as well. You'll find different ones in different locations. It's not a written religion. It's completely oral, so it morphs and absorbs. And I love that it's a danced religion. The ceremonies take place on Friday evenings in general, and you go and you dance until you enter trance. And if a sacrifice is made, because usually one does have to be made, then that sacrifice is taken and cooked up and everybody eats. I find it, of all the religions, is probably my favorite because it is so community-oriented. It's so nature-based. And like all religions, it has its dark side, which doesn't please me very much. So what are you referring to as dark side? The control through fear. And there are the uga, which the... English translation is witch doctor, which is a very poor idea of what they are. They can also have their dark, what we would consider a dark wizard sort of side and curse or be paid to cast a spell. These are all very English, very Anglophone words to describe this. And people live in fear. If something goes wrong in their life, it is usually attributed to somebody in the community has put a spell on them. And so it is also used as a form of control. And is this because people tend to be weak-minded and susceptible to superstitious belief? Or does it go beyond that? Um, I think people... I don't know that it's weak-minded necessarily. I think it's definitely uh, cultural and being raised in that. I see the corollary when I think about people in the law of attraction and that if something is going wrong in their lives their vibration is too low like it's not something that is uniquely Haitian it's something that crosses all barriers and all boundaries and all cultures I believe so is this superstition is what superstition the notion well you mentioned law of attraction and vibration being low yes well this is what I hear from people that kind of, you know, the, the law of attraction is just an example that most people in this culture would be familiar with. This idea that if you're radiating goodness, if you're vibrating at a high frequency, and if you're clear on what you want, then the universe kind of conspires to hand it to you wrapped up in a bow. And if your life is difficult, if you're just not getting the things that you actually desire, it's because you're vibrating at a low frequency. These are the, This is a vocabulary that I hear. Mm -hmm. I don't see it as any different. And yes, I do see it as superstition. The universe is neither conspiring on my behalf, nor is it 
doing anything to keep me from having anything. The universe is just this place doing its thing. I'm just not a spiritual person. But the way we think does have an effect on the way we experience things. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. However, that's just molding your reality. And what we choose to pay attention to, what we choose to work towards. I don't know anybody that actually has things just handed to them without some sort of either they were born into a great amount of privilege or they've hustled. And when you hustle and things happen, it's okay to congratulate yourself that you hustled. (laughs) You don't have to give the credit to a universe. Although we are part of the universe. Sure. We're not separate from it. Sure. So making those kind of distinctions. Yeah, language language is a weird thing mm-hmm. when it comes to talking about these things. And beliefs are very tricky things. Beliefs are tricky things. And we have a hard time separating ourselves from our beliefs. And this is something that has gotten me in a lot of trouble because for me, it's really quite easy for me to discuss ideas. And I think ideas should be ripped to shreds and dissected and just really looked at. You mean not held as sacred in any way? Sure, absolutely. That they're just things. Yeah. They're just things. They're just things. And if somebody, you know, takes them personally, attaches themselves to them, then we get into trouble. Yes, and people have a really difficult time separating themselves from ideas. Their own ideas. Yeah, or any ideas. That yeah. they get attached to. Very. And yeah. their their identity becomes identical to their ideas. Ideology. Ideology. <laughs> <laughs> kind of another aspect of superstition in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like politicized. Yes. Superstition. Yes. Which we are deeply, deeply steeped in in this country. Yes. And I would say probably all over the world. Yes. It's virtually inescapable. Yes. And it's something that we, as a species and individually, we we have to evolve our way through. It takes a lot of energy, attention, and desire to free ourselves of that. Yes. And it seems like most people are very comfortable and at home with these things. I think so. I think also one of the things that definitely plays into that is our very real biological need to belong. Mm. And, for example, getting back to my father telling us that we went to church out of respect for my mother. This is an older man, atheist, who, you know, but his desire to have a family unit just overrode that his own belief system. I can really understand that. Mm. I've done that in relationships where I've just chosen to really, like, fully commit myself Mm. and override certain hesitations Mm. and I was able to do it by the power of intention in that way for better or for worse you Mm -hmm. know I think just about everybody can relate to what you just said yeah I know I can yeah Mm. and if it was the wrong path then we find our way out so in that sense it's we were talking earlier about crazy people in our lives and stuff. <laughs> yes, we and were. it's like, life is, is this amazing, wonderful, crazy adventure, for some of us anyway. And, I mean, yeah, I've been traumatized 
and had awful experiences. But I've learned so much from them and I've grown so much from them that in a sense, I can appreciate how some people have been so deeply traumatized, but then when asked if they would change anything in their lives, they, many of them will say, no, I wouldn't change any of it, despite having really far more horrific things happen in their lives than, than have ever happened to me. Yeah, I'm never really, that's, that's an idea that I actually really struggle with. I'm never, I'm never really clear on where I stand with that because I love the person that I am today and I would not be the person that I am without having experienced everything that I have. And yet, I wonder who I would have been or could have been if I didn't have to spend so much time overcoming the traumas. Right. And still having to overcome. Yeah. 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 This is part of what I I was thinking about early this morning. Mm. Was the power of our imagination. Yes. Which gives us the ability to, in a sense, transcend the the absoluteness of this reality. And yet, we can do it. In my experience, we can do it in, in, in a fully embodied way. It doesn't have to be some la-la, um, wishful thinking um, trip. We can actually really work creatively and intentionally with it and even integrate these things into our lives you know, to, to whatever degree we we're able to. I mean, that's, in a sense, that's what creativity is and art is. It's, it's like we're all working on our masterpiece in some way. And we could go through life just like a physical automaton, you know, going from birth to death and never thinking twice about anything that happens to us. But that's not human nature. No, I don't think that it is. Yeah. It's so funny that you bring that up about imagination because I was thinking about imagination is probably one of my favorite evolutionary adaptations that we have. And absolutely, the thing about reality is that it is not, um, what was the word that you used to describe reality? You used a good one. Do you remember? Absoluteness. Yes, it was absolute. That's the beauty of reality is that in my thinking, there is the difference between reality and truth. Truth is absolute. Reality is completely moldable and changeable and, you know, it's something that malleable and we are in so many ways, we are a story and just like every good story, there's going to be twists and turns and you can remember those choose your own adventure books. (laughs) It's pretty much that that's what imagination grants you is you can just turn the page and you can decide, okay, I'm going to tell myself a different story. Mm hmm. And then all of a sudden, your reality is completely different. Yeah. And actually, in addition to thinking about the imagination this morning, I was thinking about quantum reality. Mm. Because quantum reality is on that same level. It's this notion that there's more happening in reality than meets the eye. Because we collapse reality into a single state. But according to quantum theory... The universe exists in an infinite range of possibility that we can collapse in any way. And when we tell stories, and each time we tell a story, each choice we make, we essentially collapse it into a new state. And 
there was this guy who created a quantum object which was actually visible because they talk about how quantum particles can exist in two states at the same time. And I was thinking about how, because through the power of our imagination, we can exist in two or more states at a time in that way and embody them Mm. without being in denial of reality. Mm. We can cross, go over to denying reality if we're inclined to do that, but we can also hold... I like to think of human beings as, as creatures who are able to hold paradox in our experience in this present moment. And that's what I'm meaning. We can hold both. We can hold two states at once. And by not rejecting one or the other, we can stay fully present and embodied with them. Mm, I'm not a physicist, so I really can't speak about quantum anything. I'm not, I'm not a physicist either. <laughs> These are just early morning thoughts that plague my yeah. mind. Actually, I, I love when they when they happen. Yeah, and but, I, uh, I um, concerning the paradox, I mean, it's a both-and universe. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it's a both-and universe for everything, not mm. just humans. And mm. that's the thing about reality. It's not just option one or option two like that's not the way that reality works right and it's actually all of it it's all of it yeah it's all of it and what's always fascinating to me is just to function and to get through our day there is always some part of reality that we are denying well our brains filter out totally 99.99999 percent of totally of reality totally and that goes through a conditioned, pre-programmed filter mm-hmm. that we mostly don't have any awareness or control over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you add on culture and society and quote-unquote education, indoctrination. Yeah, quote-unquote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want to bring that up too at yeah. some point. Yeah, yeah. And it's also a, a matter of getting back to the embodiment piece using our senses and you know most people can say the five senses but we also have others things like proprioception which is our ability to locate ourselves in space and know what is us and not us that can be developed through movement and dance and these things and watching a dancer move through the world is a very different experience than watching somebody who has not developed their proprioception or an athlete or anything like that so our senses can be developed once we give them their place and then reality changes completely and when we're children we have a very strong sense of that i think oh very like i remember growing up in new york city i would take the subway a lot so i would be underground Mm. and when i was young i would come out of the subway station and i always knew exactly what direction i i had a total proprio-centric sense of where i was and what direction in relation to everything around me. And I remember maybe about 10 years ago, I went back to New York City, I came out of the subway, and I had absolutely no clue which direction. Mm. But I clearly remembered how I always knew when I was younger. So it was like, huh. Yes, and that's the thing, isn't it? I think so much time is spent trying to get kids to deny what they know because talk about truth tellers those are the truth tellers children they see what's actually going on 
they see through. They see through it. All the crap. And this world is pretty much just crap. (laughs) (laughs) It's just layers and layers of pure adulterated crap. (laughs) If Johnny Cash were to rewrite that song, it would be my empire of crap. (laughs) This world. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And a very physical example is when children are born, they naturally swim. They have a natural ability to swim. And then we kind of beat it out of them. Literally. Literally. Through fear, generally. Yes. Yeah. And children are born animal, right? They're just animal. And fully connected to the world around them. Fully connected. And I can remember, I can remember in bits and pieces who I was before, you know, when I was still that creature. Yeah. But we're also these sponges. Yes. that totally absorb everything in our environment. And there's a quote in your book, you quote Christopher Hitchens, yes. talking about how if children were not taught religion before the age of reason, before they become adults and able to think critically for themselves, the world would be a completely different place. Yeah, And I would extend that. I mean, I 100% agree with that, but I would extend that to education. I think children should not be educated by anybody until they're adults and they make their own personal choices about what they want to learn. A hundred percent. Because otherwise we're absorbing our culture and that just creates this huge set of hurdles that we have to overcome in order to get back to square zero. Yes. And one of the the problems is we are cultural creatures. That is how, that's why our brains are this size. We have to learn. Our instinct to learning ratio is lower than like, I don't know, a sea turtle or something. And so we're programmed, we'll use that word, to be part of a culture. It's just that the culture that we have created is so completely off the mark that that's the problem. And I believe the word educate, if my memory serves, actually means to draw out. So even that, we're using education so incorrectly because educate means to draw something out that the person already knows. And there is this feeling whenever I'm in the presence of a really wonderful teacher or educator is I don't have the sense that I'm learning something. I have the sensation that I am remembering something. And I'm with you. I, that's why I'm a massive supporter of unschooling, which is basically letting children learn what they want. It's very child-led. To discover on their own. To me, the mark of a really yeah. good teacher is a teacher that encourages the student or the child or the person to discover for themselves. Yes. A teacher is just a facilitator. It's a resource. To remind them mm-hmm. that it's their journey. Yes. It's their life, their journey their universe, their world, go and discover it for yourself because, and to remind them that your world, your universe is not the same as mine. Oh, yes, completely. So anything I can tell you about my universe may not be at all relevant to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. There are as many worlds as there are people 
but then multiply that because we can change our world at any time. In each moment, and we do. And we do. With every choice we make. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an incredibly magical world, and we rob our children of that all the time, continually. And I think that's the biggest crime imaginable. I agree with you. Yeah, I think it's horrific. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> We need some comic relief. I was about to tear up there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm speaking with Jenny Martino here on the Magical Mystery Tour. And one of the wonderful things that I love about Goddard and the people I've been encountering in the last year, thanks to Carla Haas Moskowitz, mm. who I started out by training her to do her show. And then mm. I just fell in love with all the guests she had. And it just reminded me of this old community that I lived in. It was actually a spiritual community, mm. but it was a very tantric spiritual community. So it wasn't spiritual in the sense that most people think of spiritual. And we were all rebels. We were all exploring for ourselves. We were all throwing out all the rules and rediscovering everything from scratch. I mean, we were totally screwed up and having to wrestle with all our conditioning, but you know, doing our best to unravel things and to separate the crap out of all of it and to become free, become sovereign mm. beings. And there's a good segue. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sovereignty, yeah. freedom and sovereignty. Freedom is another word that I think is deeply misunderstood. Yes. I think when connected to sovereignty... And sovereignty, can I talk about things that people don't understand? Oof, yeah. Let's talk about freedom and sovereignty. Let's talk about freedom and sovereignty. Because I know that's something that's very important to you as well. Yes, it is. It's my guiding, it's the touchstone, it's my guiding principle. It, it's pretty much everything to me, actually. Freedom and sovereignty, they're not exactly the same thing. But they're kind of connected they're at the hip. They're very connected at the hip, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I don't even know where to begin because this is something that I could talk about for hours and hours. Well, we've got <laughs> 45 minutes. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I even studied it in terms of law, totally out of the box hmm. stuff. And I found it helped me realize even the legal principle notion of sovereignty is a very spiritual thing in terms of knowing oneself, knowing who we are, knowing who we really are. And to be really sovereign, we, we have to decondition ourselves. We have to unlearn the crap. Otherwise, we're not sovereign at all. We're totally programmed by our culture, by whatever has programmed us. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we are brought up in cultures, particularly like these cultures that are fueled by military industrial complexes. Which yeah. are totally motivated by personal gain, profit, and power. Yeah, Absolutely. Me. Competition. Yes. Me, me, me. And this is something that is interesting. I'm glad you brought up the word power because power and sovereignty don't live in the same place. People think that they do. They don't. Because um, power in general is a matter of violating somebody else's sovereignty. Well, we could tease out definitions of power, but that's how power is is known in our culture. Yes, that is how power is known. It's about control it's, and controlling yes. others. And yes. it reminds me of, of this brilliant quote by Robert Heinlein, who's this one of the most well-known science fiction writers. And he said that distinctions like left and right and Republican and Democrat, conservative, liberal, are pretty irrelevant in terms of 
of human experience that the real most meaningful distinctions on the political level are between those people who wish to control others and those who have no such interest. I grok that, for sure. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? Um, People that are in power are attracted to be in that position. And sovereignty is another thing. It lives somewhere else than power does. And in general, I'm not going to say in general, I'm just going to flat out say this is the rule, according to Jenny. (laughs) And you're our guest. So So I get to decide. (laughs) Is that sovereign people are not going to be attracted to power in the first place. Because they have power within themselves. That's Yes, that's correct. They are empowered. And when you are sovereign, the last thing that you want is to take away somebody else's sovereignty. The last thing you're interested in. The last thing you're interested in. Because by definition, my sovereignty must recognize and honor your sovereignty. If it does not, then it's something else. It's tyranny. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sovereign at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So sovereignty is taking both the responsibility, 100% responsibility for yourself, all your beliefs, all your actions, everything. Including everything that happens to us in our lives. Tell me more. We are so inclined to blame others, to blame circumstances, even when we're thoroughly justified in doing so. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that. And it's not a matter of, like sovereignty is not taking responsibility for what happens, but what we do with what happens. Sovereignty is not absolving anyone else of responsibility. It's just fully taking responsibility for ourselves because no matter what happens we have to deal with it yes regardless of whether somebody else might have done it to us wrongfully we still have to deal with the reality of the effect upon ourselves. yes and if we focus our attention on blaming somebody else we are not taking responsibility for ourselves and we're not going to grow yes trauma will remain locked in our bodies and we will remain locked up with our trauma and we will not be able to move beyond that. Yes. And taking 100% responsibility is letting go of the issue of blame. Yes. And other people's responsibility. The responsibility of other people is their business, not ours. Yes. We can communicate with others. We can stand our ground, and we can speak our truth to them, but we can't change them. Right. But we can work with our own crap, with our own stuff. Yeah. Do you see me getting a little bit more hesitant? As oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm, cha- I'm challenging you because I read your book yeah. and your book is full of minefields. Oh, it's full of minefields? Yeah. Potential minefields. Oh, this is... Because you feel very strongly about things and you're very outspoken about some things. And I think it's wonderful because it gives us something to work with. Yeah, I am I am very outspoken and I do feel things very strongly. And the thing about blaming, I absolutely things are done to us. Things happen. And I have a responsibility for what I do with that, with what happened. That person does have to answer for what they did though. In their own way. Sure. Sure. They have to come to terms with it. Depending on what it was, it may take a community 
to have that person answer because they are responsible for what they did. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. But my point is that that's in the realm of their life. Because my point with this is that it would be an act of our attempt to control them to some degree to force the lesson that we think they need to learn from it mm. on them. Could we get a little bit more concrete? Cause what's oh, you an- mean like an example? Yes, yes. God, the world is full of them. Yeah. Did I talk about this in my book? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's a couple things here because, first of all, when somebody does something to another person, this is why communities exist. There are consequences to our actions. There is a price for every choice that we make. Absolutely. Yeah, there is a price. And we each, even if we don't choose to take 100% responsibility Mm -hmm. for it, we still receive the benefit of having 100% responsibility for it. But if it happens unconsciously, then we don't understand what's happening. We're not embodied in our relationship with the world around us. I'm not sure I followed you there. It's like being in the dark. If we're unaware of the consequence of our actions, Mm -hmm. then we're in the dark and we don't see anything coming. We don't see where it's coming from. We don't understand our relationship with the world around us. Mm -hmm. When I say the Mm -hmm. world around us, Mm -hmm. I mean it includes those specific events Mm -hmm. and and interactions and relationships. Mm -hmm. So if we're not consciously taking 100% responsibility for everything that happens to us, then essentially we're in the dark. Yes, Yes. And to get back to this point about responsibility, if I do something to another person, I am going to live out the consequences of that. Depending on what it is, I may lose my relationship with that person. I may be shunned from a community for that. I may lose some rights to function in society. These are the consequences of that action. We We may actually do it to ourselves. For example, if I do something to somebody else. Mm -hmm. I feel that within myself. Sometimes I feel it unconsciously and it weighs heavily. It's like this guilt. I'm Jewish, so (laughs) guilt is is a tradition. (laughs) It's been handed down for millennia in our culture. Mm -hmm. We feel guilt in a way that I think everybody else feels it, but we are deeply steeped in it. Mm. And I think we're more palpably aware of that relationship, that sense of responsibility, even if we're unconscious of how we're affecting others, abusing others, or trying to control others, or whatever, that we feel wrong inside of ourselves, and we carry that with us. When I become consciously aware of it, then I can go, oh, and then I can cringe, and I can go, oh, and then I can feel it in my body, and I can process that, however long that takes. I've been aware of certain things in my life for decades, and I still cringe from even fairly insignificant things. But to me, anytime I step on somebody's toes or do anything that doesn't feel right to any degree, it violates my own personal sense of sovereignty. Yeah, and I think that guilt is a beautiful signal. I think that we experience guilt when we have severed a connection that is valuable to us. And the signal of guilt is to mend it, fix it somehow, do something to make it right. And that's another thing. We can wallow in our guilt. 
or we can just see it as the signal that it is and do something. It's literally an, an invitation to take 100% responsibility. Yes. Yes. And then do something. Because right. taking responsibility is not just an emotional thing. Like somebody's sovereignty doesn't matter if they're not actually living life out and acting as a sovereign person, right. taking the actions, you know. Being. Be, yeah. Yeah. Being, doing, knowing. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's more than just action because we live in a, in a highly action-oriented society. Yes. That yeah. overvalues action and pretty much ignores the other aspects. Can we agree that you show me what you do and I'll tell you who you are? Or is that not? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. If you're more certain of that, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> There's so much I don't know. Me so, too, which is, I, which is fantastic. I love that Me there's too. so much I don't know. Me too. And I think it's wonderful that there's always the potential to learn from someone else, regardless yes. of who they are. Yes, because so. they see the world differently than you do. Exactly. Yeah. And if I'm open to listening, I might hear something new. Yes, and this is where imagination and empathy and embodiment kind of meet mm. is when we listen to another person and imagine what it feels like to be in their body. Then you have empathy. You've seen the world in a different way and you are able to see what their sovereignty looks like. And feel it. Yes. We can yes. actually learn to practice feeling. Yes. Intentionally. Absolutely. I mean, what's phenomenal, like I watch actors, for example, mm. and the way that they change their posture, the way they change that the way that they walk to embody a different character. I think it's a really interesting exercise. Me to, too. Like, yeah. if there's somebody that you're close to in your life, like, mimic them and actually f do with your body what they do and see, see how the world is different to you. Yeah. That old saying, walk a mile in, in yeah. somebody else's shoes. Yeah. Fully embodying your best imaginal experience of another. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I really enjoy about, there's this, this childlike quality in you, this exuberant kind of presence. Thank you. And growing up, I found that I could usually spot it in another person just by looking in their eyes, even if it was from like half a block away. Mm -hmm. I could tell. I yeah. could just tell. You could just feel it. Because if you're in your body and you're feeling these things, you can feel that, I'm going to use the term resonance. It's just, I love being in awe of things. And I love knowing that I don't know. I love connection with people. I love, like, I love the way the trees bend under the weight of the snow. I love seeing the sunrise. It's just, the world is so beautiful and I actually fought really hard for this childlike whatever it is to have her space because the traumas that I went through, I felt like a very old lady, very young. And in so many ways, this childlike way is just another form of rebellion for me. I can totally relate. Mm -hmm. As a child, I felt so jaded Mm -hmm. and disillusioned by the world around me mm -hmm. that I felt like an old man yeah. in, in much the same way. That yeah. I, I saw through so much crap, but I couldn't see any light, so to speak, at the end of the tunnel. It was just pure crap. Yeah. Yeah. That's an unfortunate state to find oneself in, but 
it gave us something to work with, apparently. Yeah, when I think about empathy, my heart really just breaks and cracks wide open for children growing up in today's world. Me too. It's it's heartrending. Mm-hmm. And to see their sovereignty taken so young and to have the weight of all of our mistakes that we have not taken responsibility for just kind of thrust onto them. Like, oh, here you go. This is the world you get. It's criminal, really. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that all the time. Yeah. I mean, I see it everywhere. One of the things I love most in life is just watching children. Me too. And often that means you get to watch them interacting with their parents. Yeah. And I've gone through such an evolution in the way I respond to parents. I'm now getting at the point where I can actually feel the same kind of compassion for the adults who are too clueless to realize what they're doing to their children, but it still breaks my heart yeah, for the I'm, children. Yeah, I'm not there yet, so I <laughs> have <laughs> <laughs> something to look forward to. I still struggle with it's all that It's very difficult for me. Like, yeah. I mean, if I were queen of the world, like, you know, you'd have to go through like two years intensive therapy before you were allowed to have children. <laughs> Well, I, I kind of wish that I had. I, I just messed up so badly as a parent. <laughs> I'm totally there with you. I had a child at 19, mm. and I was completely unprepared, unready yes. to do that. And yes. I knew it, and I didn't want to have a child. I just knew that it was absolutely the wrong thing for me to be doing. I have no business having a child. It's fascinating. The things I have to go through to drive a car, people that want to adopt children, I mean what they have to go through to prove that they are able to have these children and then other people just have them. Right. Yeah. Something created out of a meth stupor or something <laughs> for some people. I mean, that's... It. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and just in case... You couldn't tell. It's WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, the magical mystery tour, the only place you could hear things like this <laughs> on the radio. Y- yeah. <laughs> Where do we go from there? I'm not sure. <laughs> Up, I'm sure. Up. <laughs> the thing when you commented on my, you know, this childlike. That's that's why my dog is my guru. Yeah. He taught me that. This is wonderful. Yeah. Continue. I, I, I have my stories to tell too. Yeah. Well, he was actually the thing that started me down this health path that I culminated in this book, actually. But I was so disillusioned by people because I didn't know any of them that were free or sovereign or wild or living in their humanness. Or had it any real sense of sovereignty? No, none. And yeah. um, integrity. I was, yeah, and oh, integrity. Whoo, yeah. And so I got this dog who wandered out of the woods with his three sisters and his mom. And I got him when he was three months old, and I just watched him, and he was just. He was just a dog. Like he just dogged it all day, all night. He just was all dog all the time. <laughs> You know, tomorrow, same dog time, same dog channel, like just always dog and just happy. I mean, and just fine. And 
I couldn't tell that he was worried about anything. I couldn't tell that. And it was watching him, I just started to learn about what it meant to be an animal and the complete lack of control and also the complete lack of desire for control. As long as he ate, as long as he slept, as long as he got to run, he was fine. And life is so incredibly simple. Mm. It really is. Yeah. Life isn't easy, but it sure is and simple. And it isn't, isn't necessarily fair or just, but Mm-mm. it's simple. Mm-mm. It is. Yeah, and fair and and just are often like these concepts that we create to deal with our pain, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a way of avoiding taking full responsibility. Yeah, yeah. For ourselves. Yeah. Which is all we have. Yeah. Nobody else can do it for us. No. And I I really hate it when people try. Mm. I Doesn't really work. do. No. And this is where um, the other aspect of sovereignty, this idea of help. We're kind of bouncing all over the place, but we that's are. all right. It's okay. <laughs> um, this, this idea of help is something that really bothers me. I find it so problematic and... Pretty much when I take it back to my own experience, it's kind of what has destroyed my country is this idea that Haiti needs help. Haiti always needs help. You know, how are we going to help Haiti? The idea that you have to help somebody who has not asked for your help and made it very clear what it is that they want is so paternalistic, so violating of sovereignty. And the message is you can't do it. And I can tell you can't do it because you don't do it just like I do it. And there's a price to it. Oh, most definitely. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm kind of a horrible dinner guest because I don't help with dishes unless I'm asked to help because I figure you can do it. And if you need my help, you ask for my help. So, yeah. But that's where I kind of stray from being a wonderful society. <laughs> I learned that lesson from my last girlfriend. Oh. Because I love to help. Yeah. I'm really guilty of, because I care a lot. Yeah. And there's another tradition in the Jewish tradition, which even though I'm not religiously Jewish at all, wasn't brought up with any of that, of matchmaking or meddling. Meddling Mm. is a big thing. Meddling is all about helping, you know. So the thing I learned from her was that don't answer any questions that haven't been asked. And don't, don't offer unless asked. All of that, repeatedly. And it took me a long time to learn. It was really a hard, hard lesson for me to learn. And I really had to learn it the two-by-four over the head method. Wow. <laughs> those, are, those are great guidelines, though. <laughs> Fantastic guidelines. Yeah, yeah. And going back to animals and dogs. Yes, yes. One of my favorite lines that I used to say to my dog was, you're such a dog. <laughs> That's what I used to say to him. We would look at each other and I'd say, you're such a dog. <laughs> and I had a cat, which I learned a lot from. This cat taught me to purr. Mm-hmm. I learned to purr from a cat. Yes. Learning to feel intentionally. Yes. The cats will teach you so much about sovereignty. They'll teach you so much about pleasure. They'll mm-hmm. just, oh, yeah, cats are fantastic teachers, too. They're a whole nother realm from dogs. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because a dog is very loyal and all about pleasing and, like, 
How's and that cats, cats are like, huh? <laughs> you live to serve me. <laughs> I'm it. Yes. <laughs> I'm it. You can follow if you want, but, and I could care less. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When I was in high school, I had some friends. We were, we were essentially, uh, we had no hope for humanity. Mm. We thought human beings were, were a, a curse, a virus mm. on the planet. And, but we were all really, you know, friendly, gregarious, caring people. But, <laughs> but we had, we were totally jaded. Yeah. Uh, when it came to human beings on the planet, they were completely screwed. You know. Yeah. As a species, just completely hopeless. <laughs> well, I think so. that's funny that I like the irony of that. I yeah. like that you were these gregarious, like, happy people. Um, In school, when we were together, we were. Yeah. At home, who knows? <laughs> yeah. Like, I suffered a lot of depression. Yeah. And I was socially very uncomfortable. But in school, with my friends, I was fine. School was actually a vacation from life at home. Oh, you lucky, ways. lucky thing. I didn't have vacation from anything. School was, school was a total nightmare. Well, it was only when I got to high school because mm. I went to many, many, many different schools for the first eight years, eight, eight, oh, first wow. nine years, often two schools in one year. Oh my goodness! So I went, that wasn't that yeah. was not fun. That was, but when I finally got came up here, went to high school for four years in a row in one place. That was like, first year was was awful because most of the kids were jerks. Yeah, but then once I settled in, it was it was pretty good. I oh, mean, wow. I don't think much of education in this country, and I can't say that I learned anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know from school but I had a good time yeah and I and I was a terrible rebel in, in certain ways like administration hated me administration hated me too and administration was my mother so I didn't really escape home my mom was the director of the school I went to she started off as my first grade teacher mm. <laughs> <laughs> I went to the same school from kindergarten all the way to graduating from that school and in the middle of first grade I was bumped ahead to second grade and even though I was intellectually ready for that I was nowhere near emotionally prepared for that and like we had mentioned already I was a very sensitive child and so I I cried a lot and yeah crying in school is not a good thing for because kids will just merciless and merciless <laughs> and so I was bullied and same kids I graduated high school with just all the way through mm. yeah it was pretty it was pretty heinous it was awful yeah I love kids but kids can also be just as bad if not worse than adults in some ways I, yes I can usually tell whose parents are what people's parents are like yeah yeah, and what kind of neglect they're dealing with and what kind of power struggles that they're having to deal with, that they'll enact that on another child. I love kids up to the age where they start going to school. After that, they start learning. They, they're masters at teaching each other the worst tricks that they learn from each other. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And we want children to behave differently than we do. That's the thing. Like, the way that school is set up is so horrible, and it just violates sovereignty and violates their inner knowing completely. But then we want them to treat each other well. But right. that's not what we're teaching them. Right. It's so insane. It is insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely insane. That's the wonderful world we live in today. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming to this very kind of ugly, pimply head. Yeah. I mean, part of me is kind of hoping so. I mean, just pop it. (laughs) (laughs) Just let out the infection so that it can heal. I I think that we've got some dark days ahead of us. I really, really do. Yeah. I really do. At least within ourselves. I mean, for me, when I think about it, it's just so dark inside of myself in response to it, just thinking about it. Who knows what's actually going on out there? Mm. But I know there are a lot, a lot of people who are scared. Yes. Living in fear. And by the looks of it, they're well justified. And I don't know what has changed, though. Is Are we just aware that they're living in fear? Is that those of us that yeah. were going along clueless? Yeah. Now we're aware? We had this conversation last time. Yeah, I, I think Talking we did. Talking about how clueless. Yeah. I think we I, just finally got the invitation to the party, maybe. The curtain was drawn. Yeah. We're seeing the, the personification of the wizard behind the curtain. Yeah. In all his glory. Yeah. Yeah. Gird your loins, everyone. It's going to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. I almost brought an article relating to that this morning. What was it about? It was about the darkness that we're, we're entering into, that it's always been here, but now it's becoming visible. It's like the curtain has completely opened wide, and here it is. Mm-hmm. It's been there all along, mm-hmm. but we were cl- too clueless to realize it. Now there's no denying it. Now it's no. so clear and so obvious, and we're, and it's in our face. Yeah, and I mean, I think we need to be careful about the we, Um, because I who is the we that is finally seeing this and I'm wondering if we could use another word than darkness yeah I I use that for want of a better term yeah because it's about taking responsibility for this stuff that's lurking in our culture's unconscious or subconscious that we haven't taken responsibility for we haven't acknowledged we haven't opened up and faced we haven't become aware of and i I think what's happening is like the absolute sum the the epitome of lack of responsibility it's stunning to watch this complete refusal to take responsibility for one's actions one's words including our lack of actions yes yes all of it and this is the lack of responsibility just turned loose and the complete lack of sovereignty and power. This is power, just pure narcissistic power. And what happens when it's not kept in check? The terms that come up are like lost and slaves. Yes, but there's something of the master in the lostness as well. If we're going to use the slave master, because a slave can only exist if there is a master. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So those are both sides 
of this lack of sovereignty coin. So a master is no more sovereign. They're just, if not more, they're just as lost. Mm-hmm. Um, they will remain lost for longer because they're in the position of power. So they don't realize that there's something that they need to fight in themselves. Right. And we are the masters who created our own slavery by virtue of whatever ignorance was ruling the roost at the time. Yeah. And I mean, if we want to take this down to the micro and talk about ourselves as master and slave within our own psyche, the master is present when we hear should, when we hear I must, when we hear the judgment, when we hear the keep in line, the, you know, this is what society says to do. So do it so you can be a good person. These are all the the ways that we know that the master is making some kind of appearance. And anytime we compare ourselves with anybody else. Mm-hmm. It's a subtler form of that, but it's equally insidious. Yes. Yeah. And debilitating. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another reason why it breaks my heart when I think about children growing up in this world, because they're so susceptible to that. That's what we do, isn't it? When mm-hmm. we send them to school and we, we set them up to compare. You know, what did you get on the test? Like all of we're, that. We're literally throwing them in a shark tank. Yes. In many ways. Yep. And training them to be sharks. Yeah. Yeah. I think of that old story of the father who stands at the bottom of the stairs and tells the little boy to jump. I'll catch you. And the boy jumps and the father lets him fall on the floor. And he says, let that be a lesson to you. Wait, that's the whole story? Yeah. That's horrifying. Isn't that horrifying? Yeah, I don't like that story. I don't either. (laughs) But that's, in a way, that's what we do. We throw our kids into a world we know about and that we survived and that many don't survive. Yeah, and we've also set up a kind of world where there are so many people that do not have an option they have to send their kids to these indoctrination camps so they can find food Mm. for dinner. And I was thinking about how these conversations about happiness, they are these incredibly privileged conversations. The American ideal of the pursuit of happiness, you know, I mean, is such a privileged, for lack of a better word, pursuit i mean how what percentage of the world is just in pursuit of dinner today or in pursuit of clean water you know or just surviving absolutely surviving the next horror around the corner in the next moment absolutely and so i i have to check myself sometimes you know about how privileged i actually am and that word has a lot of baggage for me, but I definitely, I do not worry about eating today. That, that I know. Mm-hmm. I don't worry that I'm not going to have clean water today. I know that. And just those two things have me already so incredibly far ahead of the vast majority of this planet that anything else is just superfluous. And that's how I feel. Yeah, we're so fortunate. 
Yes, we are. We have Maslow's hierarchy of needs covered. Yeah. And therefore we can we can play. Absolutely. And so when we were talking about the story and how we create our reality, I really could fall into the trap of saying, well, I don't have whatever the latest bag is. I don't know people that follow fashion and know these things. Or I can just talk about how grateful I am that I am going to eat today. Well, that thing about happiness, you know, the, the level, the level at which we look at happiness the level at which we experience happiness, the level that we really experience happiness. Is it from buying the latest fashion, which no. lasts for maybe a minute for those who are into that, and then they have to go out and get the next thing? Well, that's the thing about pursuing happiness, isn't it? I mean, it's just an emotion, and all emotions are fleeting. They all are. They're just a river that runs through us. And so constantly searching for that hit, it's... Like a drug. It's a drug. Yeah. We, we treat happiness as a drug. Whereas the notion of sovereignty, which there's a lot of baggage that, particularly in this community, around the notion of how this nation was founded on the principle of having the freedom to pursue you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness... If Which you were based on a certain sovereignty. color and gender. Right. Yes. Yes. But I think it was based on the notion of sovereignty, of, of having that sovereignty, which, as you just mentioned, was only conferred upon land-owning yes. white people. Yeah, white Privileged men. Privileged yeah. white men. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was the beginning of a good ideal, but it was just the beginning. Well, that's the thing about sovereignty. You don't have to wait for a paper to be written or somebody to sign some kind of declaration for you to seize it. In fact, nobody will give it to you. And it's having a piece of paper is meaningless. Completely meaningless. Words on a page, yep. ideas, concepts are meaningless unless you fully embody them. Absolutely. And this entire system is a complete illusion. It's all illusory and we invest so much of ourselves into pieces of paper, whether it's money, diplomas, degrees. And if we were going to teach anything in school, we should be teaching our children to move in the direction of discovering their own sovereignty. We should let our children teach us what that looks like. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They're so much closer to reality than they know it. we have ever Absolutely. been. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 That's why I like being around animals and children far more than adults generally. Although I've been finding wonderful adults. Yes. I choose my adults carefully. Me too. <laughs> Quite the vetting process. <laughs> <laughs> it's been wonderful having you on. It's been great. I, I so enjoy talking with you. I do too. Yeah. Thank you, Tonio. Yeah. yeah. It's been a blast. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a song that I, I heard at the end of a movie I watched a few nights ago. It's an interesting movie called well, American Honey. Song I want everybody to listen to. And it's talking about love and it's talking about hate. And I just love this song you know, at the end. I think the only way we're going to do away with hate is to get so much love going around till there just won't be any more hate. So thank you so much There's again. So thank you. I had such a great time. On the right and on the left. You see, we hate our brothers 
that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a great week.